This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is good to see you all here. Welcome back for a wonderful week of Lunch and Learns, or Zoom and Learns, as we prepare for Pesach. Last week, we discussed the connection between Purim and Pesach, and this week, we are going to forge ahead with our Pesach preparations. Before we do that, I want to first of all thank all of you for coming, especially those of you who leave your cameras on. Not that I'm pressuring anybody who's not leaving their camera on to leave their camera on. It just happens to be that when you have a bunch of uh, live faces, it makes it feel more like a live class, and I appreciate that. I also want to say thank you to the amazing staff at Yeshua Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for arranging for this Lunch and Learn to happen, this Zoom and Learn. It used to be a Lunch and Learn back in the, in the, in the B.C., in the before COVID days. Um, and God willing, it will get back. We will one day, not, not long from now, we will have lunches. Uh, I'm going in for my second vaccination soon. A lot of you have been vaccinated already. It's going to happen again. We're going to have those outsized desserts again from, from uh, Jerusalem uh, Pizza. And we are, also want to thank the amazing folk over at about, uh, Torah Anytime because it's an app and because it's a website and because they have hundreds of thousands of hours of Torah classes that can just fill your medulla oblongata with just great Jewish information and knowledge. And isn't that what we all want? A medulla oblongata filled with great Jewish information and knowledge. Thank you to the folk over at Torah Anytime. And, of course, you can um, access this now on Apple Podcasts. We have gone high-tech. We are on Apple Podcasts. We are on Spotify. If you guys want to see what it looks like on Apple Podcasts, I will show you right now. Here is... Here is the Apple Podcast app, and there it is. Boom. Burnham on the Parsha. So if you want to look for it on Spotify, you just go to Burnham on the Parsha. Or Apple Podcast, Burnham on the Parsha. We're going high tech here. That's right. Raise the roof a little bit. Just a little bit. You don't want to shake it up too much. Okay. Alrighty. So I want to tell you guys about A.B. Stein. A.B. Stein works for a... Uh, an accounting firm, and his wife says to him, "Honey, you know, we got a lot of preparations for Pesach. We got all this cooking, all this cleaning to do. Ab, you got to stay home one day and just help me with the with the with the with the uh, cleaning. It's get, it's getting to be too much." Ab says, "I don't know. I'm working." She's like, "Look, you got to ask your boss. You got to ask your boss. You'll just take off one day. We'll tackle four bedrooms. We'll, we'll start getting the, you know, the, the, the pantry set up. We'll do the menus. We'll do everything. Just take one day off of work. So, okay, I, I don't know. I have to ask my boss. He goes into his boss the next day. He says, boss. He says, yes, Amy. He says, look, my, uh, my wife, where she's, she's preparing for a Passover, the, you know, the Jewish holiday and all that, and uh, she's feeling a little overwhelmed. She really wants me to quit, and not quit, to, to take off one day from work. And, uh, and, and, and stay home and, and do that. Can, can I do that for just one day? And his boss says, A.B., come on. This is the tax season. You know what I'm saying? You're an accountant. There, there are no days off. I'm sorry. You can't take a day off. Impossible. And A.B. says, thanks, boss. I knew I could rely on you. All right. So there we go. So this is a big shout out to all those who are taking the time to clean and to cook and to help and to do all the things that are needed to be done. So, Yashakach to all of you. We salute you. A.B. may be able to squirrel out of it, but n- not everybody can. And if everybody did, we would have nothing done. So, thank you to all of you who are the frontline workers. That's right. The essential workers of the Jewish people. The people who are preparing Pesach. 
The people who are going Pesach shopping, buying the food and the clothing. The people who are cleaning the houses. The people who are cooking the food. Thank you to all the essential workers of Kla Yisrael. We would not have Pesach without you. Thank you for all that you are and all that you do. Now, this year, we are going to do something slightly different. We are going to do the Pesach Seder back nine. So if you live in a golf course, or you don't live in a golf course, but you go to golf courses... The full golf course, of course, is 18 holes, but sometimes you pay the play just nine holes. You can play the front nine, which is usually a little bit easier, or the back nine, which is usually a little bit harder, right? And you can decide where you want to play, and you can do that. You can do the front nine or the back nine. So I feel like often when we do Pesach preparation for the Seder, and we talk about the different ideas that we can learn for the Seder, we end up getting into the beginning of it. And we talk about Kiddush and the four cups of wine and the breaking of the bread and the, of the matzah and the halach ma'anya. And we get so caught up in all that because there's so much to talk about. There's obviously, there's so much to talk about that we end up neglecting the end of the story. And that would be a shame because the end of the story is pretty awesome. The end of the Seder is amazing. So <clears throat> what we're going to do today is we're going to start from the end of the Seder, right? We're going to start from all the way at the end and we're going to work our way backwards. We are doing the back nine today. Not even the regular back nine. Regular back nine means you start with hole 10, and you do 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, culminating, of course, at the clubhouse with the 18th hole. We're going to go 18, 17, 16, 15, 14, 13, and we'll see what we get to. Okay, so that's what we're doing this year. We are doing the back nine of the Seder, bringing meaning and purpose to the areas of the Seder often neglected. Neglected by most, but not by us. Let's get into it. In most families, they have the custom. Well, forget about the custom for a second. Let's tell you a story. Let's tell you a story about a man named Robert Whitmore. And Robert Whitmore was a young man who had a hard life. He was growing up in Victorian England in the mid-1800s. His father had died way before uh, he was you know, he was on the picture, unfortunately, and his father had died. His father worked in a factory. His father had died pretty young. And his mother, um, unfortunately, also fell ill and, and died. And he was a young man. He was 11 years old when he was orphaned. But he was scrappy. And he was hardworking. And he first literally started selling, like, just, like, apples or fruit that he would buy. And he'd buy, like, just a, a bundle of, of fruit and then sell it on the street one at a time. And that became successful. And eventually, he was able to build up from selling out of a, a basket to selling out of a pushcart. And then from selling out of a pushcart, he built up and eventually was able to get a storefront. And from a storefront, he became a wholesaler. And from a wholesaler, he became an importer-exporter. And before you know it, he had a thriving and very, very successful import-export business with a huge warehouse right on the docks in England, in, in London, on the, in the, the London port. And he was very, very, very successful. And um, unfortunately, he had some competitors who were a bit unscrupulous, and they didn't like the fact that he was, you know, that he was doing so well, and he was, you know, kind of eating their lunch. And so they decided to rat him out to the government and lie about him and place false accusations that he was cheating on his import duties and his taxes. And before you know it, one day Robert Whitmore comes to work, and boom, shakalaka! There is the uh, the the agents from the the British police and, and the customs office and they go through a raid of his off of, of his warehouses and they discover all sorts of things and they basically say that you are a criminal and they put him up to court and here's a man who spent his whole life he's, he's a young man still he's 27 years old he's very successful 
But they basically tell him that he was a thief and they confiscate his entire warehouse. They confiscate all his merchandise. And not only that, they say to him, you really should hang by your neck. I don't know if you know this, but in Victorian England, they hung people quite easy. Street urgents could literally be hung for stealing. It was that simple. You stole an apple off a pushcart and you could be hung. It was crazy, right? Um, So they said, you should really be hanging by your neck because that's what we British do best. But we're going to have a little leniency and we're going to send you to the biggest penal colony in the world, the biggest prison in the world, which was at the time Australia. As you well know, Australia was literally first started off as, as, as a, a massive island that was a prison. And England would just ship every week boatloads of convicts and felons, ruffians of all sorts and kinds, and ship them off to Australia. And they would be sentenced to many years of hard labor. It was, it was a brilliant move to send people there and make most of them build the infrastructure for free. Because um, they go to these big prisons, they get sent- sentenced to 10 years in prison, 15 years in prison, and they've got to work. And while they're working, they're building the roads, they're building the sewer systems, they're building the governmental buildings, right? It's a lot of free labor, building up the colony that they wanted to have. And eventually, they also had a rule, though, that you were never allowed to leave Australia once you were sent there. Like, if you were sent there as a convict, you could never come back to England. So, Robert Whitmore is sent as a convict to Australia, and he's sentenced to 10 years of backbreaking labor in one of the massive prisons there. And for 10 years, every day, he's working and he's working and he's toiling and it's difficult and he's building infrastructure and buildings and aqueducts and all sorts of things. And he's counting down until he gets free and finally he gets free. And here he is now. They push him outside of the prison. Here he is standing outside of a prison in Australia with not a penny to his name. Just wearing his prison uniform still. They didn't give you, like, he had, he had, like, no civilian clothing. He's wearing his prison uniform, and he's got nothing. And he can't even go back home to England to try to, like, reconnect with his business partners. But he says, look, I did this before. I'll do this again. Somehow, he washes dishes for a while until he gets enough money that he can buy a basket of apples and fruit. And he starts selling it out of the street, and he becomes successful, and he does it again and again and again. And eventually, he puts enough money together, and he buys himself a push cart, and eventually, he does enough, puts enough money together, and he buys himself a storefront, and eventually, he puts enough money together, and he starts a wholesale business, and eventually, he puts enough money together. I mean, he's like, I got this playbook. I know how to do this. And of course, the colony of Australia was booming at the time, because so many more prisoners were coming in every week. Thousands of new citizens were joining. And eventually, he's got a successful import-export business in Australia. He gets married. There, there were women who came as convicts. There were many women who came as convicts, because women could be convicted of almost anything, too, and just shipped off to Australia. The British understood that we need a relatively uh, equal ratio of males to females, although there wasn't. There was, it was, there was definitely more men than females there. But there were actually there were some women who were coming who were like not convicted of anything, but they literally came because they were going to marry like the cream of the crop. In Australia, if you could marry a non-convict, like that was like, you married a non-convict. By the way, I don't know if you guys know this, I married a non-convict. That's right, yeah. So like, I don't boast about it often, but we're talking about it right now. I married a non-convict. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, so the bottom line is, Robert Whitmore, being such a successful man, he ends up marrying one of these non-convict women who come on the boat seeking fame and fortune, um, and he gets married. He starts a family, and he becomes one of the most successful people in the city of Sydney, Australia. 
And every year on the anniversary of his uh, getting free from prison, he makes a big party for all of his friends. And he has, you know, it's an outdoor party and they're all, you know, they got the waiters and the waitresses and they bring in their hors d'oeuvres around. They've got fine sherry and port and great drinks and they've got music playing. I mean, he's very wealthy. He's very successful. And it's, they go inside to the, the main house and they have a big dinner with like, you know, 16 different forks and knives at each place and th- seven different, you know, glasses. And in Victorian times, they were very into that kind of thing. Like, how many forks and knives you had at your, at your meal was a big indicator of how successful you were. So you had lots of forks and lots of knives, lots of cups. He was very, very successful. And him and his friends, they would drink, they'd be toasting to his freedom, and yada, yada, yada. It was amazing. At the end of every party, though, he would get up. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> he would get up and he'd be like, okay, attention, attention. I want to make one special toast. And he would say, here is a toast to our motherland, the United Kingdom, the great British Commonwealth. We're here and we're successful, but we sincerely hope that one day this ban will be lifted and we'll be able to go back home to our motherland. That, my friends, is why we dance around the table at the end of the Seder and we sing Lashana Haba Birushalayim Habnuyah. We got out of Egypt. We were slaves there for a long time. And then we got free. Bar- Not we got free. We didn't get nothing. Hashem freed us. Right. We got free. What is it like a stimulus check? You just sit around and it just sends it to you in the mail? No, 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 no. Hashem saved us. Hashem saved us, right? Hashem took us out of Egypt with great miracles and great wonders. And we, every single year, we get together and we celebrate that with our Pesach Seder. But we realize we're still in Gullus. We're still in exile. This is not where we belong. We don't belong here in Detroit or in Florida, in New York, California, Chicago, we, we don't belong here. This is not our homeland. We can't wait for this decree to be lifted. We're living, there's a decree, there's an exile. The Jews were decreed that we have to be in exile right now. So we are where we want, where we are, but this is not where we want to be. So we just celebrated the Pesach Seder, and we're saying thank you Hashem for letting us out of prison. But we're not home just yet. We're not home just yet. Please, God, bring us home for real, for real, to the land of Israel. Lishana haba birushalayim habnuyah. And allow me to make a recommendation. Allow me to make a recommendation. God willing, you'll have your Seder, and you'll have your four cups of wine, and you might be a little bit tired. Of course, you don't have to drink wine. You could drink grape juice, or you could drink half grape juice, or half wine, and half wine. Or you could drink one-third grape juice, one-third wine, and one-third water, which is what my mother used to drink when I was growing up. You could drink light wines. They make a lot of light wines. If you go to your kosher supermarket, they have all kinds of wines, Rashi Kal, Matuk Light, whatever it is, that are made at 5%, 6% alcohol. Or you could go big, bold Cabernets, like I do. And at the end of the Seder, you're good to go. Baruch Hashem. You feel the chayrus, you feel the freedom. However, my friends, at the end of the Seder, when it's all said and done, if we can take a moment to step aside and say to Hashem, 
I'm ready to give this all up. I'm ready to give this all up. This life that I have here, maybe my home is, my mortgage just got paid off, and I've got two cars, and I've got a comfortable home of a nice size. You know, in Israel, people are living in apartments. It's much more cramped. They don't have as much square footage. I mean, they don't have square footage, period. It's square meters over there, but... You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. Like, some people are like, look, when the Jews left Egypt, four-fifths of the Jews did not want to leave. They're like, we're comfortable here. Yeah, we've been abused a little bit, but did you ever hear of the Stockholm Syndrome? Yeah, we're going to stay here. And unfortunately, those four-fifths never made it out of Egypt. And there is a concept, by the way, that when the final Messiah happens, only four-fifths, four-fifths are not going to make it. Unfortunately, if you ask the average Jew in America today, do, do, excuse me, sir, do, do you want a Messiah? Like, what's that? Is that a Christian thing? Like, no, 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 it's actually a Jewish thing first. It's like this like redemption thing, and we're going to all go to Israel, it's going to be amazing, we're going to serve God. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the majority of Jews in America are like, ah, sorry, no thanks, let's keep this relationship a little more professional. And you can stop asking me questions now also. That would be much better. Yeah, right? Unfortunately, that, that's where we're at right now. But when we, we need to do after the Seder is over, we have to remember, Hashem says to the Jewish people, I appreciated you so much when you were willing to drop everything and follow me out into the desert. Hashem. So says God, I remember the kindness of your youth. You were willing to come out after me into a desert, into a land that had no, it was not, it was not tilled, it was not worked, it, had, it was not plowed. You went out into a desert. What were you going to eat? You had no idea. You had a bag of matzah on your shoulder and that's it. But you had faith in me. And you followed me out and you said, if God's taking me there, it's going to be good. At the Seder night, we need to tell Hashem that we are standing here. He nani. We are ready to go out once again. Hashem, I may not have the blood of the Paschal offering on my doorpost, but consider it as if I, as if I do. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to follow you out, God. To follow you out into whatever desert, whatever unknown is about to happen. And I'll leave my house behind. I'll leave my two cars behind. I'll leave my 401k behind. I'm keeping my Bitcoin. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'll leave anything behind, God. Just take me home. Just take me home. Lashana habab Yerushalayim habnuya Hashem, take me home. And I mean it. So if we can have a moment at the end of our Seder, where after everyone's, we don't got to do it in front of everybody else. It's a private conversation between you and God, where you say, God, I just want you to know, He, Naini, I am ready to go out. Please, I really mean that. When I say Lashana Babi Rushalayim Habnuya, it's not like a nice song. It's not just a nice song for me. It's a reality. I'm ready to drop everything. I just got a promotion at work. I, I just bought a new building. I just whatever it is, I don't care. I'll leave it all behind. Hinani. So that's what we end the Haggadah with. Lashana Babi Rushalayim Habnuya. We actually, the custom for most people is to say it twice. We say it a little bit earlier in the Haggadah, and then we say it again at the, end of the, at the end of the Seder when it's really, really over and we're all dancing and we go to bed. That's the last thing that we usually say. So that's, uh, I think, a very important idea for us. And that's, I think there's something new here that I'm saying that you may have not heard ever before. This idea, again, of like having a little conversation with God 
to just say to him, I'm ready to go out. And the last word of that is hineni, flow. Where hineni means, behold, I am here. I'm ready to go, right? God, often when he called upon people, he called Avram, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham says, hineni, I'm ready. And Moshe says, hineni. And throughout all of time, so many of our great leaders said, hineni. Hineni means, I am here. I'm ready for service. Okay, so let's have that conversation this year on the Pesach Seder night. Let's have that conversation with God where we tell him, I'm ready to go. Okay, next. And by the way, the Gemara says, the Gemara says in Rosh Hashanah, Folio 11a, Yud Aleph Amud Beis, Amud Aleph, I'm sorry. The, the Gemara says, Rabbi Shua Omer, Rabbi Shua says, Benisan Nivra Olam, and Nisan the world was created, Benisan Noldu Avos, and Nisan the forefathers were born, Benisan Mesu Avos, in the month of Nisan the forefathers died, Bepesach Nolad Yitzchak, Yitzchak was born on the first day of Pesach, Berosh Hashanah Nifkadasar Rachel Bechana, on Rosh Hashanah, the great Jewish women, Sarah, who was one of our matriarchs, Rachel, who was one of our matriarchs, and Chana, who was one of the great prophetesses, were, um, Hashem remembered them to become pregnant. On Rosh Hashanah, Yosef got out of his jail. He was in jail for a couple of years until Pharaoh had the dream of the seven cows. On Rosh Hashanah, our forefathers stopped doing actual labor in Mitzrayim. So there was a long time. That's why a lot of them wanted to stay. They're like, listen, We've been here for a couple hundred years. We were slaves for so long. We finally get our freedom, and we're living in Egypt still, and we don't have to work anymore. We're no longer slaves, because the slavery had stopped already on Rosh Hashanah. So when God's like, okay, I'm ready to take you guys out, they're like, thanks so much, God, but you're a little bit too late. God's like, I'm the one who made them stop working you. You're a little too late, God. I'm sorry. Things are good for me now. I don't need out anymore. I'm comfortable here in my gullus. Finally, Ben Nisan Nigalu, in Nisan, the month of Nisan, the holy month of Nisan, we were redeemed. Ben Nisan Asidin Ligael, and in Nisan we will get out once again. That, of course, starts this Sunday, the month of Nisan. Okay, next. Chad Gadya. One baby goat. How many ideas am I going to give you about the baby goat today? Four. Because four is the night of Pesach. Four sons, four cups of wine, four questions of the Manishtana. For Lashonos of Geula, the Torah So the theme of Pesach is a lot of fours. So we are going to do four explanations behind the Chad Gadya. The Chad Gadya, of course, is the song where we sing about the goat that was eaten by the cat, that was eaten by the dog, that was beat by the stick, that was burned by the fire, that was put out by the water, that was drunk by the cow, that was slaughtered by the butcher, that was killed by the angel of death. That was killed by the Lord Almighty. Boom. All right. What is the deal with that song? What is the deal with that song? Okay. We're going to have four different opinions on that. Here we go. Number one. Give me one second. Give me one second, guys. I'm sorry. Okay. Um... First idea, there was a 14th century Torah scholar named Rabbi Shimon ben Samach Doran, right? Who was born in Mallorca, Spain in 1361. But in 1391, in the face of the massacres in Spain, he fled to Algiers where he wrote a masterpiece uh, of of, uh, an incredible work of Jewish literature known as the Tajbates. The Tajbates writes the following in it. 
He explains the Chad Gadya as follows. He says the Chad Gadya was written by its author to be a riddle, to be a mystery. It's a wacky story there, right? The little goat that cost two zuzim that was eaten by the cat, the dog. What is going on? Says the Tashbates that the author of the Chad Gadya song wrote it as a mystery. You know why? Because he wants you to plug in the answer that you come up with. That's right. We are waiting for your answer. And if you've just had four cups of wine, your answer will probably, probably, your answer will probably be quite colorful, right? Four cups of wine in, you're like, and then the cat is like, uh, he's like, dude, where's the dog at? And then the dog ate him. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> But in any case, no, the, the, the Tajbait says that the purpose of this song is to be enigmatic and it's fill in the blank, right? Meaning it's your job to fill in the blank. It's your job to figure out what it means and to come up with your own idea. The Torah that you come up with on your own is very, very precious, right? Obviously, there's so much Torah out there that was put out there by great rabbis over the years. But when you yourself come up with Torah ideas, it's so precious because you worked over that idea. And that's the last thing that's on the Seder docket. So it may be 2 o'clock in the morning. Guess what? I know people who stay up all... I know multiple people who stay up all night long. Just last night, I was in, I was in Madison, Wisconsin yesterday. Right? My sister and brother-in-law, Rabbi Mati and Chaya Miller, who are incredible, incredible Jews. This is incredible Jews. They live in Milwaukee and they do outreach at University of Madison, Madison uh, was at University, University of Wisconsin at Madison. And for a long time, they were badgering me to come out and speak for their, for their students. <laughs> for those of you who don't get that inside joke, the Wisconsin team is the Badgers. Okay. And anyway, they were badgering me for a long time to come out and speak for their students. And yesterday I had the quick pleasure, well actually not the quick pleasure, because our flight got delayed two or three times and finally the people were like just bull rushing the, uh, the, the, Delta, the Delta counter and like, okay, okay, go to B12, we'll get you another plane. That's literally what happened, not me. I, wasn't, I, was, I was kind of a, a quiet bystander. I'm like, all right, maybe we'll just come up and do this on Zoom. But no, there was a lot of people from Madison, Wisconsin who were not happy with Delta for delaying our flight three times and finally they just like forced Delta to like send us a different bus, you know what I'm saying? Anyway... The bottom line is I went, I was in, it was in Madison, Wisconsin yesterday, and we zoomed in a rabbi, Rabbi Klatskow. Now, Rabbi Klatskow, Rabbi Ben-Sion Klatskow is an amazing rabbi. He's been, he's been doing Jewish outreach for over two decades. I mean, he's one of the greatest veterans in, 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 this, in Jewish outreach in America today. And he had a house that had like, I don't know, it was like, I don't know how many beds. In his house alone, in his house alone, he had like 60 beds or something like that. Now, Mind you, he himself has like 12 children. <laughs> but 60 beds, 12 children, the math still doesn't compute. Because he used to have at his house every week these massive Shabbatons. Of course, we're talking about B.C., before the COVID, right? But he used to have massive Shabbatons. But listen to this amazingness. He's an amazing special person. We were actually, we were in Israel with a large group of like 20 students, maybe more, a couple years ago on a trip. And his son was getting married. He's like, bring them all to the wedding. Let them see a good Jewish wedding in Israel. We're like, all of them? He's like, yeah, bring them all. We all went to the wedding. No one knew, like, the boy or the girl. We all went. It was like an amazing, amazing experience. So Rabbi Klatsko 
every year, his Pesach Seder, both nights, and he's, I'm sure he's got a very large Pesach Seder, right? Even if he just keeps it all family, it's a pretty large fame Seder. But he always has his house open to guests. And by the way, the last time he spoke to the Wisconsin students, the University of Wisconsin students, his house had burned down that day. He had a terrible fire in his house. And Baruch Hashem, the Jewish people are so special. They're all, people got away right away mobilized trying to help him rebuild his house. Because his house is a house of kindness for the whole world. It's like a, a, a hostile, it's like, it's like Avram's tent. Rabbi Ben-Sion Klatsko's house was like Avram's tent. Open, open, open. And he had a terrible fire, and people right away rushed in to help him. But in the meantime, he's renting a house somewhere else. And the last time he spoke to the University of Wisconsin students for my brother-in-law and sister's program, he spoke to them on Zoom. His hands were still bloody and burnt and cut up because he, he was trying to get things out. And they, they were able to, He had safer Torahs in his house. Baruch Hashem, they were able to rescue them. But he still had like soot and dust on his hands and his face. He literally came from like taking care of his house that had burnt down and then said, you know what? I'm going to go right now and teach these students because there's 30 students waiting for me in Wisconsin. I'll teach them and I'll go back to my house. It's not going to burn anymore. The fire has been put out. Could you imagine? Rabbi Ben-Zion Klatsko, every year, his Pesach Seder goes until the morning, until services in the morning. They, they daven Vasikin, which is like the earliest time you could daven, uh, or you should daven. And let's say it's 5 o'clock in the morning in Muncie, or 4.45, whatever it is, they start the services. His Seder goes until davening. They daven chakras, they sing a beautiful halal, and they go to bed. And they wake up in the afternoon, they make a meal, and they continue on. They do the same thing in the second Seder. So, if you finish your Seder at 1.30, 2 o'clock, you still got plenty of time to go. Says the Taj Bates, here you go. You want to figure this one out? Work on this riddle over here, right? Let's see how long it takes you. This is like a thousand-piece puzzle. You know what I'm saying? Put this one together. Figure this out. The cat, the dog, the stick, the water, the cow, the butcher. What's going on? Put it together. Come up with something. Let it be your Torah. That is the Taj Bates. Next answer. The second answer is going to be slightly in jest, but it's actually not so, so much in jest. Especially ever since this past year. I think it's a very appropriate, after a year of COVID, this answer is very, very appropriate. There were two great rabbis who lived uh, in the 1700s, or maybe it was even 1600s. Their names were Rav Yaakov Emden and Rabbi Yonason Ibeshitz. These are both names that to this day everyone recognizes. These are, these are names that are still used, we still learn their sfar, and we still learn their works today. They had a massive fight. Rav Yaakov Emden was convinced that Rav, Yaakov, that Rav Yonason Ibeshitz was a, a um, Sabbatean. He was a Shabtai Tzvi, that he was a supporter of Shabtai Tzvi. Now again, that's a very, very, very horrific and very, very sad part of the Jewish history, the whole story of Shabtai Tzvi. You had a nation that was just so embittered and beaten down from hundreds and hundreds of years of violence and horrific pogroms and inquisitions and everything that we had been through. And Shabtai Tzvi came and many people thought he was Mashiach and he, there was, it was a receptive crowd. People wanted Mashiach so, 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 so badly. And like we say, you talk to American Jews today, you want Mashiach, they're like, ah, unfortunately, not all of them, but there's a large percentage of American Jews that like, <laughs> no thanks, thanks but no thanks. I don't, I don't need no Messiah. I don't need to go to Israel and like start worshiping God. No thanks, right? But in the days, in the, it, 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 back in the day, when people, Jews, were constantly the victims of pogroms and bloodsheds and blood libels, I mean, it was horrible. People desperately wanted to believe that Mashiach was here. 
So Rav Yaakov Emden believed that Rav Yonason Ibeshitz was a secret Sabbatean, that he was a supporter of Shabtai Tzvi. And he had all kinds of proofs, and Rav Yaakov Emden went after Rav Yonason Ibeshitz hard. And he was trying to bring proofs. It was, it, it was, a pretty, it was actually a pretty, pretty significant machlokas. In any case, Rav Yaakov Emden is traveling during this time. Rav Yaakov Emden actually, by the way, was thrown out of his place. He had to move to, I believe he moved to, to Holland. He, he lived somewhere like in, in, uh, in, in like the Germany area, like the three, the three counties, three countries. I forgot what it was, Altona or something. I, I forgot exactly where he lived. He was literally thrown out of where he lived because of his attacks on Ravionis and Ibeshitz. But he didn't stop. He, to, the, to his death, he believed that Ravionis and Ibeshitz was a Sabbatean. And he went after him. In any case... One time, Rav Yaakov Emden is traveling, and in the olden times when you traveled, you know, you obviously you weren't getting very far on, on foot or on, you know, with your, with your horse cart or whatever it was. So there were many taverns along the way, and the taverns were often owned and run by Jews. The taverns also doubled usually as the distilleries and breweries, because often the church would not allow Christians to do the work of the devil and make alcohol. So the Christians, of course, forced the Jews to do two things. Lend money, because that was considered dirty. Usury was considered dirty, right? I mean, the Old Testament itself already has certain prohibitions against lending money with interest. So the church would not allow the Christians to do the money lending, so that forced the Jews to do the money lending. And the church would often not let the uh, the Christians brew or distill alcohol and spirits. Now, of course, this was not a good thing for the Jewish people, because, first of all, (laughs) think about this. I'm the guy lending you money. I'm also the guy who's right near you when you're really drunk. That's not a good recipe. And it really didn't work out well. I mean, often, right, this, this was a common situation where, like, non-Jews who owed the guy sitting across the bar from them a lot of money would often, in a drunken rage, like, end up just killing the guy to try to absolve their debts. I mean, it, was, it was tough. The Jews had such a tough time. If you understand what Jewish history looks like, you understand how much you have to appreciate what we have right now. Like, it's impossible to comprehend the fact that we have such peace and security in America today. Baruch Hashem. But like, our, if you spoke to your great-great-grandparents from the 1600s, they wouldn't believe it. Like what, you have no programs? How often? How often do you have programs? Like just every two years? Is it only on Christmas or is it all year round? You Because like also, you know, on December 25th was a notorious time for Jews. I mean, every Jew was locking himself into his house, afraid to walk the streets. It was scary. In any case, Rav Yaakov Emden, so the way it would work is a lot of the taverns on the side of the roads were owned by Jews. Now this worked out well for when Jews were traveling because they would spend the night in the tavern and then get a kosher meal. So if you were traveling from the city of Lublin to the city of Lezhensk or whatever it was, you know, you couldn't make the trip in one day. It would take two, three days and you'd stop off on the side of the road at these kretschmas, these Jewish taverns, and you'd come in, you'd get dinner. It's kind of like a bed and breakfast, dinner, bed and breakfast. You'd get dinner, you'd get a breakfast, you'd sleep in the big, great room usually. If you wanted, if you, you only had a lot of money if you were going to get a private room, right? <laughs> you had to have a lot of money if you were getting a private room. Most people just slept in one big, great room, which of course, as you can imagine, led to a lot of thievery and who knows what. Um, but you'd get dinner there. So if Yaakov Emden is having dinner, at a Jewish tavern, and he hears the people at the table next to him talking about his fight with Rav Yonis and Ibeshitz. Ah, Rav Yaakov Emden, what's wrong with him? He's crazy. What a, a, a violent, crazy, vile, evil man. They're like cursing him out. And of course, they have no idea that it's him because this is before the days of selfies. 
So Rav Yaakov Emden never took a selfie and sent it out on the gram. So no one knew what he looked like unless you lived in his cities. But people knew about his fight all over the place with Vionis and Ibishitz. So these people in this cavern are sitting here, they're slamming Rav Yaakov Emden, not realizing that he's literally sitting at the table next to them. So finally Rav Yaakov Emden comes over to him and says, Listen guys, you guys look like some learned, very smart people, of course, because smart people, by the way, you know what smart people talk about? Ideas. Right? You know what foolish people talk about? People. <laughs> if you think, by the way, about our society today, the amount of time that people spend talking about people, it's just insane. Insane. So if Yaakov Emden, of course, sarcastically says, you guys look like such smart people. Yeah, you're talking about people, right? You guys look like such smart people. Can I ask you a question? I say, sure, yeah, go ahead. He says, I never understood the Chad Gadya. Let's go through the story. The cat ate the, 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 the goat, the Chad Gadya. That was very wrong of the cat. How dare he eat the goat? So the dog came along, and the dog was right for punishing the cat. Which means that the stick was wrong for hitting the dog. Which means that the fire was right for burning the stick. Which means the water was wrong for putting out the fire. Which means the cow was right for drinking up all that water. Which means that the butcher was wrong for slaughtering the cow. Which means that the angel of death was right for killing the butcher. So why did God kill the angel of death? Uh Uh-huh. You ever thought of that before? So Rabbi Yaakov Emden asked them this question. And they're like, wow. They're thinking about it. They're like, that's a good question. We never thought about that before. So finally, you know, it's like with my kid. I play, tw- I play 20 questions with my kid. He's like, okay, daddy, think of somebody. I'm like, okay, I'm thinking of somebody. He's like, is it mommy? Nope. Is it Ora? Nope. Is it Shifra? Nope. Okay, I give up. <laughs> I'm like, son, this is not how that game is played. You know what I'm saying? You got to put a little work into this. You got to put a little effort into 20 questions over here, right? But like these guys, with Yaakov, I'm going to ask them this question. And they're like, wow, that's a good question. Okay, we give up. What's the answer? Rav Yaakov Emden says like like this. The cat killed the father's goat. And indeed, the cat was very wrong for doing that. The cat should not have killed the father's goat. But guess what? That That was not the dog's business. It's not the dog's business to get involved in the cat's fight. With the father of the goat, or the, or the father who bought the goat. It was none of the dog's business for getting involved. So he's wrong too for getting involved, in which case the stick is right for hitting it, in which case the fire was wrong for burning the stick, in which case the water was right for putting out the fire, in which case the cow was wrong for drinking up the water, in which case the butcher was right for killing the cow, in which case the angel of death was wrong for killing the butcher. And that's why the Lord Almighty smote the angel of death. Now, that is somewhat in jest. Flow of attorney, you like that? Okay, good, alright. That is said somewhat in jest. Because if you think about it, you say that the dog was, was, was wrong for getting involved with the cat's fight, in which case then everyone's wrong the whole way. The stick was wrong, the fire was wrong, everybody's wrong. The bottom line is we went into Egypt because some of the brothers got involved in a fight that wasn't theirs. Right? There were certain brothers who had issues with Yosef. And certain other, brother, other brothers got involved. That was not their fight. That was not their business. 
and they end up selling Yosef down to slavery. And how much of the pain and suffering? Right now, we are in Gullus today. You want to know why we're not Lashana Abba Yerushalayim Abnuya? You want to know why we're not in Israel? Because we're still fighting. Because we're still getting involved in other people's business. And especially in a year like this. What a difficult, challenging year it's been for our people. And not just because of the physical toll of coronavirus, which was great and horrific. But I feel like even more, even more than all of the toll of the physical toll of coronavirus, the illnesses and the deaths, but I feel like even more harming and more damaging is the, 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 the relationships that have been torn apart. You don't mask enough. You mask too much. You're in da- There's so much anger. There's been so much people wading in and hating on other people because of the way they responded. Look, this is a world pandemic. And there's been so much changing medical advice on it, let alone the fact that like, it, it's different people from different age groups, different levels of, uh, of risk. There's so much at play over here. It's a very, very complicated issue. And look, you figure out what you want to do, and probably, hopefully, you're figuring it out not by listening to talk radio and not by listening to CNN, but like by talking to your local doctor. I have in Detroit my posig, so to speak, my doctor rabbi. He's not a rabbi. He's a doctor. But he's like my rabbi for coronavirus questions. And when my family had questions, should we do this? Should we do that? I called him all the time and I say to him, I said, I'm so sorry that I keep bothering you. He was very friendly, very nice. And I called him all the time to ask him about coronavirus questions. But maybe you feel like I'm being too lax. Maybe you feel like I'm being too stringent. And by the way, people have felt that about me, I know for sure. People have felt about me that I've been too stringent. Many people felt that way, including my children. And people have felt that I've been too lax, I'm sure. But the amount of anger and fights and dissension and familial pain that we have gotten to because of this. Why can't we just say, this is what I'm going to do, but I respect what other people do because that's their choice. I'll watch myself if I believe they're doing something that's harmful or dangerous. I'll keep myself away from them. But this whole like getting angry at other people, this is a complex issue. Yeah, of course, we just lock everybody down, but the surges in, in, in suicides and depressions are also something that's real. So the bottom, it's a compl- I'm, not telling, I'm, not go- I'm not weighing in either way. What I am weighing is make sure you have somebody you talk to, you formulate opinion, do what you, not, not, not your own opinion, what you're doing is based on expert advice, and then don't judge other people. Stay out of their fight. The cat ate the, 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 the chargaja, leave it alone. It's not your business. We went into Egypt because people got involved in other people's fights. We're still in exile today because people are involved in other people's fights. Let's get out of this exile. Let's mind our own business and let other people be. Okay, next. The Vilna The Vilna Gaon, the great Rabbi Elio Kramer from Vilna. He has a piece on the Chad Gadya too, and he basically says it's the story of the Jewish people. The Chad Gadya, the goat, represents the special blessing 
that was handed down from God to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac, and from Isaac to Jacob, when he brought him a meal of goats on Pesach. When did the story happen with Jacob bringing in the food and serving his father and getting the blessings? That happened on Pesach. So, the Chad God Yah represents these very special blessings that were handed down again from God to Abraham, from Abraham to Isaac. Isaac gave them to Jacob on Pesach. And Jacob gave them to his Benzakunim, to his favored son, Joseph. However, came along the cat. The cat is the jealousy of the 12 tribes, of the 11 tribes, the brothers who sold Joseph into slavery. They ate, so to speak, the goat. They ate Joseph, who had the blessings. And that is the cat. And the dog that bit the cat is the Pharaoh and the Egyptian people that bit and subjugated the Jewish people, the 12 tribes of Israel, who was represented by the cat. And the stick that, had the do- that hits the dog is Moshe's special staff that had Hashem's name on it, that he used, either he or Aaron used to perform the ten plagues. That's right, blood, frogs, lice, wild aminals, pestilence, so on and so forth, brought down with this incredible staff of God, and indeed the final, final act, <coughs> excuse me, the splitting of the sea was done with the staff, and the bringing back of the sea was done with the staff. So this is the staff that hits the dog. This is the staff that hits the Egyptian people that subjugated the cat, which is the Jewish people. However, comes along the fire. The staff was the staff of God that redeemed the Jewish people and brought them out of their slavery. But then the fire came and burned the staff. The fire represents the passionate desire for idol worship. And if you read the books of the prophets, which we do every Tuesday night, by the way, at 7 p.m., feel free to join us. If you don't know about it already, feel free to email me at Alburnum at Partners Detroit, and I'll send you the link for our 7 p.m. class. We're in the middle of talking about the first king of Israel, King Saul. In any case, if you read the books of the judges and the prophets, you see that the Jewish people were struggling with this desire for idol worship. And the desire for idol worship is actually described as like a fire. There's a story, it's brought down in the Gemara and Avodah Zarah, and I believe in Sanhedrin, that describes how the men of the Great Assembly destroyed the desire for idol worship, and it came out like a fiery lion out of the Holy of Holies. So the fire is the fire that destroys the stick. Hashem takes the Jewish people out, they're doing so well, but then the fire of idol worship destroys that special relationship between God and the Jewish people. Come along the water. What is the water? The water is the men of the great assembly that removed the fire from the Jewish people. The men of the great assembly, again, they prayed to Hashem for three days and three nights and fasted that Hashem should remove the desire for idol worship, and it worked. And the men of the great assembly are represented by water because Ain Mayim El they were the ones who ushered in the second temple era, which was a time of great Torah scholarship, way more than the first temple. The first temple was really more based on prophets and miracles and divine service and idol worship. The second base on Mikdash is much more about Torah scholarship and prayer and, 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 and debate and more of intellectual debates. That's why the second temple is when you have the Greeks who didn't want to kill our bodies, they wanted to kill our soul, our, our intellect, our, our, our allegiance to the Torah. 
So that is the water. And then comes along the ox. The ox is the Roman Empire. The rock, the ox is the Roman Empire that takes the Jewish people and puts them into Gullus again and puts them into exile again and put, brought us out and we're still in that exile right now. And the butcher that kills the ox is Mashiach ben Yosef. Because the sages tell us there's going to be two messiahs, Mashiach ben Yosef and then Mashiach ben David. Mashiach ben Yosef is going to come first. But he actually is going to help save the Jewish people, but in the process he's going to die. The Gemara describes in Mesechta's Brachos the funeral for Mashiach ben Yosef. So the slaughterer that kills the ox, that kills the Roman exile, is Mashiach ben Yosef who will pave the way for the redemption by overcoming the fierce forces of exile. And then the angel of death will kill the slaughterer. He will slay the Mashiach ben Yosef. And then HaKadosh Baruch is going to slay the angel of death and bring the Mashiach ben David the final redemption. So, says the Vilna Gon, the story of the Chad Gadja is the story of the Jewish people from our beginning until our future. Lastly, my friends, lastly, that's idea number three. So, so far we have three ideas on the Chad Gadya. Number one, it's fill in, your, fill in the blank yourself, like the Tajbait said. Number two, Rav Yaakov Emdin, get out of other people's business. Number three, the Vilna Gon, it's the story of the Jewish people. And number four, and I don't know where I heard this, but I believe I heard this from somebody else. I don't think it's my own. In the story of the Chad Gadya, Everything does what it does. You know what fires do? They burn wood. You know what water does? Puts out fires. You know what, you know what oxen do? They drink water. You know what dogs do? They harass the cat. And the idea is that just as much as we see in nature, every part of the song doing what it does, it is just so much natural that one day God will slaughter the angel of death. It's a song of faith. It's a song of hope. We look around at the world and we see that everything is doing what its nature is to do. The water putting out the fire, the fire burning the sticks, the stick, etc., etc. And lastly, things do what they do and therefore God will conquer the angel of death. God will kill the angel of death and usher in the great Messiah. Thank you very much, Hi, for putting it on the side. All four of the answers for today. Fill in the blank. What do you think it is? Number two, get out of other people's business. Number three, destroy the Jewish people. Number four, things do what they do. God conquers the angel of death. We are going to have a Messiah. Even though it tarries, even so, every day I await for it to come. Mashiach will come. Just as much as fire burns sticks and just as much as water puts out fires. Mashiach will come. That's the hope that we end our Seder with. Okay, that ends Chad Gadya. Now we go to who knows one. Who knows one? I know one. One is Hashem. One is Hashem. One is Hashem in the heavens and the earth. Who knows 13? I know 13. 13 are the Midos of Hashem. And twelve are the tribes of Yisrael. And eleven are the stars in Joseph's dream. And ten are the commandments. And nine are the months of giving birth. And eight are the days of the bris milah. And seven are the days of the 
Shabbos, six are the orders of the Mishnah, five are the orders, the books of the Torah, four are the mothers and three are the fathers and two are the luchas that Moshe brought and one is Hashem, one is Hashem, one is Hashem in the heaven and the earth. Dun, 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 dun. Everyone knows the other melodies. I agree with you. That's, that's just one of the melodies. There's many, many melodies. There's many, many melodies. Yeah, I was just flexing. just showing everybody I know 13. It's kind of cool. What's up? What's up? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, you can just hit a like, bucket, like button whenever you want. I do know 13. I'm kidding. <laughs> Boom! Okay. What's the deal with that song? How did that one get in there? How did that little ditty get in there? Okay. So, number one. There is a famous piece from English literature. And if you know the answer to this, please get ready to type it into the chat box. When the queen is in the parlor eating bread and honey, what is the king doing and where? Okay, again. When the queen is in the parlor eating bread and honey, what is the king doing? The king is, of course, hiding in shame because his daughter-in-law did a tell-all with Oprah Winfrey <laughs> and told everybody about what a poor, poor person she is because she was picked on as a royal and she made $150 million from Netflix and we're supposed to all feel bad for her. Okay, anyway. Okay, the answer is he's in his counting house counting all of his money. That's right. The king is in the counting house counting all his money. The queen was in the parlor eating bread and honey. Okay. What do we count? What do we count? You know what we count? Whatever matters to you. If you are a venophile, you know what a venophile is? One who loves wine. If you are a venophile, you love your wine, you probably have a nice wine cellar, and once in a while you go down to your basement and you just start looking through all your delicious bottles of wine. Just touching them, caressing them softly, convincing yourself that you need to turn them just a quarter turn once more, even though you already did it this month. You just like touching your wine. It feels good. And maybe if you like the whiskey, you just open up your cabinet from time to time and check out, oh yes, you still do have that Pappy 23. (laughs) Okay, or maybe if you really, really enjoy your stocks and your stock portfolio, You log in once every day, two times every day to your TD Ameritrade or your Charles Schwab account and you look at how many shares of Apple you have and how many shares of Tesla, Allah of Shalom, you have and how many shares of GameStop and how whatever you've got, you check your money. Ooh, look at this, looking good. Maybe you like watches and you have a whole watch collection sitting in your wardrobe upstairs and every once in a while you just take them out and you caress them softly and you put them back. I'm just making sure that they're well wound. Ah, they're in a machine that winds them for... But you know, just sometimes you just, you just got to do it yourself. Maybe you love your cars and on Sunday afternoon you take out all three of the cars from your house, including your wife's minivan, and wash and wax them so carefully. Whatever you love is what you count. You know what we love? We don't love the money. We don't love the Bitcoin. We don't love the stocks and equities and bonds and real estate. We may have... We may dabble, but that's not what we love. You know what we love? We love the matriarchs. We love the patriarchs. We love the orders of the Mishnah. We love the books of the Torah. We love the days of the Brismidla. 
We love the days of the Shabbos. We love the 11 stars in Joseph's dream, and we love the 13 meters of Hashem. That's what we love! So that's what we count. You count what counts to you. You count what's meaningful to you. So on our day, on our night of greatest celebration, you know we take out and count? We don't count our money. Because that's not where our value lies. We count our matriarchs and patriarchs and Torah and Mishnah and so on and so forth, because that's what counts to us. That is idea number one. Idea number two, and this is so beautiful. This is so beautiful. You know, it's not polite to talk about your money. If you're rich, if God has blessed you with money, the polite thing to do is keep your mouth shut. And just this week, I have these conversations all the time with people. I beg them not to buy like ridiculous, like 27-year-old guy, super, super successful. Please do not buy the Range Rover. Just don't do it. Don't. Just stay humble. He's like, but I love cars, Rabbi. I'm like, I know. Go on vacation with your wife, stay at the nicest five-star resort, and rent yourself a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. Do whatever you got to do. Get your, get, your, get, your, get your Ferrari on. But don't be driving around our neighborhood when people here can't pay their rent. Just don't do it. Now, of course, if you live in a neighborhood where everyone's driving a Range Rover, go ahead, drive your Range Rover. But if you're living in a neighborhood where people are struggling to put food on, your table, on their table, don't do it. Don't show your wealth off. Don't talk about how, yeah, yeah, so I, you know, yeah, I bought 4,000 shares of Tesla when it was at $27, and I'm glad I held on, man. I'm glad I held on. And people are like, wait, 4,000 shares? It's right now at 560. What? Really? I've got $8 million worth of Tesla? It's crazy. So yeah, they got like, yeah, man, it's crazy. I don't know what happened. It's like weird, whatever. We don't talk about our money. It's not polite. The problem is when we get drunk sometimes, like nechnas yayin yetzasod, the wine comes in and the secrets come tumbling out. Sometimes you get a little drunk, you get a little loose-lipped, and you start boasting about what you got. So you don't normally talk about it, but once you're a little bit drunk, yeah, so my, we went down to Florida private, of course, you know, the coronavirus, we've got to be careful, you know, I'm in private, whatever. You, know, you just drop that information. We just drop information when we're a little bit drunk. The Jewish people, when do we get drunk? We get drunk twice a year. We get drunk on Purim. And who knows what we talked about then. And we get drunk on... We don't get drunk. We don't get drunk drunk. But on Pesach, I mean, if you had four cups of cab, you you are well into your cups. You're lubricated. You know what I'm saying? And stuff just slips out of you a little easier. So when you're drunk, because you had four cups of Cabernet... Even though you're not supposed to boast about your wealth, but you just, you just can't help yourself. You're like, yeah, whatever. I got. I, I have the four matriarchs. Yeah, whatever. And like, yeah, have you heard of the five books of the Torah? They're, they're mine too. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, I was, yeah. I, I know you had the Mona Lisa. I got the six orders of the Mishnah, and yeah, I got the, the, the eight days of the of the bris milah. That's mine too. Yeah. So when the Jewish people are drunk and they start boasting, they can't help it. They they can't hold back. They start boasting about their wealth. What is the wealth that the Jewish people boast about? The five books of the Torah, the six orders of the Mishnah, the matriarchs, the patriarchs, the luchos, the tablets, the Shabbos. That is our wealth. That's what comes out when we slip up a little bit and let people know what we've got. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is that idea? 
And with that, I conclude. Just, you, you can't beat that. Amazing. Have a wonderful week, everybody. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.